Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And our special guest this week, Damian Cox. Well, clay season continues on the ATP and WTA side, and Dominic Team and Petra Kvitova picked up big titles this past week. Rafael Nadal is for the first time in a long time, looking human on the surface. And the Canadian contingency of Shapovalov and Oje Aliassim had some mixed results as well. And uh, our veteran Canadian journalist, Damian Cox, outstanding broadcaster and writer as well. Uh, you can find his work with The Star and Tennis Canada. Damian, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Before we start on the Canadian side, I actually do want to start with Rafael Nadal because it has been quite some time that we, we've seen him lose consecutive uh, lose for consecutive consecutive weeks on clay and this time falling to Dominic team who uh, captured the big title at Barcelona. Uh, look, Nadal has, has owned Roland Garros, of course, with 11 straight titles or not 11 straight, but 11 titles rather all. Um, do you have any trepidation, I guess, about his chances at the French open this season? Well, not trepidations uh, and good evening guys. Uh, more, um, I, I mean, he'll be the favorite going into Roland Garros. Let's let's be clear on that point. But I think for the first time in in quite some time, um, you know, maybe since the days way back when when Robin Soderling beat him, um, there seem to be a couple of guys at least, and certainly Dominic Team, who stand more than a puncher's chance against Rafael Nadal on play, and that that's that that's something new. He's looked human uh the last couple of outings um you know and just not as dominant on that surface as we've seen now i think they always come with an asterisk these events in that they are two out of three sets not three out of five and to beat nadal three out of five on clay is another level of uh, of accomplishment entirely i would say but certainly um there seem to be more players and dominic team is definitely one of them who can handle the, the, the Nadal ball on the dirt when so many players couldn't, including Roger Federer, for so long. That in and of itself is a, a new development. Um, we know Nadal has struggled with his health. Um, the clay seems to be easier on his body, but you know the years and the years and the years of pounding on, on all surfaces has clearly compromised him to some extent. Now, whether it'll compromise him enough that when it comes to the French Open, someone's able to knock him off there, well, we'll wait, have to wait and see for that. I think I agree with your comment about uh, best of five. I think Nadal's got another level that he's going to be saving himself for when it comes to that, that tournament, which undoubtedly holds a special place in his heart. So I wouldn't read too much into these early results. And then when you think about it, the people he's lost to are not bad tennis players, especially on clay. Fabio Fanini has carved out a nice little niche for himself on the surface. And Dominic Team, I think we can all agree, is probably the heir apparent uh, on, on clay when Nadal does finally hang up his racket. Uh, about Dominic Th- Team, I think... He's really shown himself to be more than just a, a dirt baller. I mean, that victory in Indian Wells this year on hard court where he got his first Masters 1000, I think uh, opened a lot of people's eyes. And this is a guy that's beaten the big three, uh, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, on more than one occasion. And there aren't a lot of players that can uh, lay claim to that, as well as wins over Federer on grass and, and Nadal, as we've seen a few times on clay. Uh, at, at 25 years old, do you think that uh, you know the future in terms of uh, Grand Slam success beyond the big three, uh, we got to put Dominic Team right up there near the top. Yeah, I mean he might be he might be the best all 
court, you know, all surfaces player in the game today because of what he's able to do on clay. Now we got to see him at Wimbledon again, and he's had limited success there, but certainly on all the other surfaces, he's shown um, he's well among the you know the top few handful of players in the world. On the clay, he just moves so beautifully. You know, his ability to slide and you know be making contact right at the end of his slide. That perfection in that, which you know, it may be the best in the game right now because Nadal, when he's not you know in a perfect position, his raw athleticism, his brute, his brute power takes over. Team's a little different. Timing on that beautiful one-handed backhand, but his ability to slide and move may be the best in the game on the clay. So, you know, I, I think we all sit back. You know, whether it's Dominic Team or Denis Shapovalov or Felix or any of these young players. You know, they burst upon the scene, and then we expect them all just to take off. It takes time, and you guys know that. And, you know, at 25, probably now, I think we're actually in a, in a, in a world now where we can kind of approximate a hockey player's career and a tennis player's career. You move into your prime around 25, 26, 27, and you're still dangerous 32, 33, 34 if you're Roger Federer. Um, whereas before... Um, I think it was, you know, tennis players were, were winning slams when they were 18 and they were peaking when they were 25. So that has shifted a little bit. So team is, I think, just sliding into his prime right now. And Milos Raonic, who unfortunately is going to miss the clay season, or miss these, uh, you know, I think he's now in his prime. And, it, it, you know, it's incumbent upon him to, if he's going to win something big, to do it now. So team right now is the player to watch probably just as Naomi Osaka is the player to watch on the female side, but that doesn't get you anything being the player to, they don't give any trophies for that. It's going to be a fascinating, fascinating season in tennis all around. Yeah, and especially this clay court season, uh, as Roger Federer, for example, uh, will be making a return to clay as well. And you mentioned Denis Shapovalov, uh, another one of the young guns, of course, from Canada. And uh, he's had a bit of a slow start, I guess, on the clay court season. He lost to Christian Guerin in straight sets this past week, and he's now 0-2 on the red surface. But uh, what are you making of his 2019 season overall? Because, as you said, I I think we, we do sort of have to temper expectations in terms of when he's going to be, you know, peaking at his absolute best level. Yeah, I mean, some good results, a little, some some enigmatic play. You know, when it comes down to the clay, I'd say, well, how much has he played on the clay? I mean, Felix has played on the clay more than, than Dennis has. So he's still figuring it out, and players are figuring him out. You know, it, it becomes a cat and mouse game for these uh, young uh, stars uh, as they come on the scene they're able to catch some people by surprise get some results but all these other players they, you know they watch video too they have coaches they they are able to identify patterns that other players play with areas in which they're not as strong and i think you're seeing people do that with Dennis Shapovalov so the next level of where it comes for him to start compensating a little bit more i think we still need to see the the serve beefed up a little bit um, I think we need to see his temperament um, be more helpful to him in difficult situations than I've seen it this season. Although he's a guy who, you know, he fights from behind. So I'm always a little careful to talk about, you know, his temperament. Um, but um, I, I think we're, you know, he's been a little bit up and down. I find it a little bit 
uncertain to know what we're going to get from Shapovalov when we see him. And to me, that fits the profile of a player as he's about to leave his, his teen years and move into his early 20s. He's living with life on the tour, you know, all the demands and the things that come with it, the loneliness of being away at home, the, the demands of sponsors and all those things, things that the three of us don't have to worry about. He's got to worry about as a teenager, as a not yet a fully formed adult. And those are all things that we don't see on court, but I would argue very much factor into how these young pros develop and the speed at which they develop. With, uh, with Dennis, he's certainly a sharp contrast in personality to his buddy Felix, although the two do get along really well. Very exciting just to think of the prospects of what we're going to see, whatever the pace that the two do develop at over the next 10-plus years. Uh, if you're a Canadian tennis fan, I mean, it was just weeks ago they were both in the semifinals of uh, Miami and now transitioning surfaces, as we've mentioned. Certainly it seems like Felix is the one for this portion of the season who's going to have a bit of the upper hand as it plays to his strengths. Uh, several tennis greats, including Brad Gilbert, have been in awe of Felix's talents, calling him such a complete player. Where do you see Felix fitting into the tennis landscape, already now into the top 30 at the age of 18? Yeah, I mean, well, and, and you know, and, and like his buddy, he had a result on the weekend that sort of caught us a little bit by surprise. Like, that wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, true. I mean, you know, against Kai Nishikori. And, uh, and Nishikori's an experienced guy. But for me right now, if, if you said they're both, let, let's say you told me they're both going to win slams, OJ Aliasim and Shapovella. They'll both win grand slams. Who will win more? I would say Felix will win more. I, I, there are things I like about him um, uh, that I, a little bit more. I like his physical stature. I like his balance on court. Um, I, I, uh, I, you know, I, I like the way he hits off both sides. But I don't like his serve right now. And that's, let's face it, guys. I mean, we've seen Milos Raonic make it an entire career out of having a great serve. Felix needs to find that part of his game on a consistent basis and with more power. And I think Shabovalov's got that part of his game, but he needs to up that part. So I agree with you. I mean, it is so thrilling to see these two guys coming up together. I mean, we had Raonic and Vasek Pospisil, um, and, and, you know, and then they made a Masters uh, event, um, the semifinals too. They were able to do that in, in Montreal. I would argue right now that the potential of these two young men, Shapovalov and Oje Aliasim, is greater than it was for uh, Raonic and Pospisil when they were sort of coming up together. And they were a bit uneven, and Raonic was always decidedly ahead. I think the three of us could sit here and go, you know, we, we probably would all disagree on who do we like the more, who do we think is going to be better, and we're going to change our mind over the next few years as they get different results. So I think this is going to be, it's kind of like in a lot of ways in the U.S. when they had Agassi and Sampras, and then one was up and one was down, and who do you like better, and what do you like more about this guy's game? I think that's the blessing that we're going to have with these two young men for the next decade. Yeah, and uh, it's great as well. They, they play with different styles. You, we, we have a left-hander who plays with a one-handed backhand, which is unique in, in its 
in itself. And Felix Ojeali, his seam, can really assert himself with, with that forehand. And as you said, just terrific balance on the court. Uh, just diverting back to Milos Raonic, as you mentioned, uh, just recently announced that uh, not only did he pull out of Rome, he pulled out of Madrid. Uh, look, last season, he skipped the French Open. We know clay courts aren't really suitable to the big serving threats like Emilos Raonic. These aren't normally your prototypical players who have uh, great success on the surface. Uh, is this, I, I know right now it says he's rehabbing a right knee injury, but uh, is this maybe a calculated decision by, by Milos to rest his body and do his best to try and peak for, for Wimbledon, which is uh, not, not far away either? Well, I mean, I think everything Milos does is calculated. He's just that kind of guy. He's a thinking uh, man's tennis player. He's a thinking athlete. He is, from the beginning of his career, carefully calculated his ability to to deal with injury, to recover from injury, um, and to account for injury uh, in his tennis calendar. And and I absolutely think this is calculated. I'm a little I'm a little in the minority when it comes to Milos on the clay. I've seen a lot of good things from him. He, he's not the prototypical clay player, and I get that. Mm-hmm. But I, I've often watched him and thought, you know what, the ball slows down a little bit, so his movement isn't necessarily as big a factor. Now, he doesn't slide beautifully like a team or a Nadal. I get that. Um, but I, I've actually not minded him on, on the clay a lot of times. But what you say is true. It certainly takes the sting out of the serve, so that's his biggest weapon. Um, look, we're seeing a tennis world now in which players are making calculated decisions as to what parts of the year they're going to play that best enhance their ability to get points and to make money. Roger Federer, one year he's not playing the clay season, one year he is playing the clay season. Maria Sharapova, she's rehabbing an injury. She's staying away from the clay season. Uh, Simona Halep, she makes the choice to play. Fed Cup gets hurt, so she skips uh, Stuttgart. I mean, we're seeing these decisions, and they've always been decisions for tennis players, but I think tennis players, because they understand, um, you know, the grind of the season. There's so many more events, the demands of tournaments for them to play, the opportunities they want to take events, you know, whether it's grand slams or opportunities to make money, um, you know, they're going to make decisions based on, on all those factors. And so I think absolutely Milos, could he play you and I, we don't know that, but I think he has, he knows he's going to be, he's not going to be an athlete. who's going to go for, a year, two years without being hurt. That's just not going to happen for him. So he's got to manage his injuries. He's got to make decisions and play where his chances of winning are the best. And if you're Milos Raonic, that obviously is going to be on, on grass, which is coming up just after Roland Garros. I mean, that's his bread and butter. So if he can be healthy for that, I wouldn't take any risks going and playing anything on clay if oh. I wasn't 100% sure I could come out because that's going to be his best crack at a slam still. And at 28 years old, you said, you know, peaking or prime years. But with his injuries, you never know when you're going to have to hang up the racket and call it a career. So you got to be damn sure that you're going to be ready for the grass courts and for Wimbledon if you're Milos. Yeah, I mean, like there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Roger Federer going on and on. But look, in recent weeks, we've seen David Ferrer. He's had to hang him up. Um, although he looked pretty good this week, didn't he? Yeah, um, he did. <laughs> he, you know, Nicholas Almagro, another guy, um, he's hung him up at age 33. So we're into that window now for 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 Milos as to you know, how many opportunities is he is he going to have left. So um, 
I, I think uh, it, it's too bad in a way um, that he's missed so much time. I guess on the flip side of that, you could say maybe there's a little less wear and tear on him and that, you know, he might be a Stan Wawrinka who gets his first slam when he's 29 years old or something like that. We're seeing players. Uh, Kevin Anderson is, a, is another player who's better at 32 years of age than he was at 27 years of age. Milos might be that kind of guy. Um, I remember Mark Filippoussis getting to the finals of, of Wimbledon one of the first years I went. I don't know how old he was at the time, but you know he was sort of a guy who had been around, a big serving player. So I would agree with you. I mean, Milos has already been to a Wimbledon final. He's he's come close. Um, if it, it's two weeks of, of it all coming together, of your game, everything happening, getting a few breaks, a couple of other seeds losing, and all of a sudden you're through and you play the, the tennis match of your life. And I, I think all of us who love tennis and all of us who love Canadian tennis uh, and admire Milos for, for being the trailblazer he's been in men's tennis would love to see him at least get one slam. Just, just get one slam. I don't even care where. Um, you know, if he gets one slam, I think that would be fantastic. Now, if we uh, move over to the women's side, but stick with Wimbledon finalists, former Wimbledon finalists, and it's easy to forget because it was almost five years ago now, but Jeannie Bouchard, uh, she's also been absent from the tour, um, claiming now in the last few days that it is a, an ab injury, although she left everyone kind of wondering for weeks what was going on with her, her absence. Um, lots of going on on uh, social media, as it always seems to be with Jeannie, and I'm not going to weigh in on that. But uh, it, it just strikes me as strange. Her coach, Michael Joyce, who I thought was a good fit for her and I thought could bring some stability to her game, and we saw some positive results towards the end of 2018. He just uh, abandoned ship, although politely said it was a, a mutual decision. Well, what is your take on what's going on with Jeannie Bouchard? Because just when you think it's uh, starting to turn the corner, it feels like we're back at square one. I know exactly as much as you guys know, <laughs> and as much as anybody knows. And it's it's... It's it's frustrating, um, and you do you do wonder what direction all this is going in. And my guess, guys, and I don't I don't know anything, so this is just me observing. Um, is I wouldn't be shocked if if Jeannie Bouchard packed it in in a year or two. I, I really wouldn't. It's it's been a really tough road for her since 2014. Uh, you know, way more disappointments than success. Um, um, injuries, um, changing coaches, um, but not a lot of changing approach. Sort of, I, I, I you know, like I, I watched Jeannie play, and her game hasn't changed at all in the last five years. Um, and so you get the feeling that she's just banging her head against the wall, and maybe that's part of what she's doing right now. And again, I don't know this. I mean, it's she. she it's up to her to tell the world, but. You wonder if part of this is just a mental break, uh, a refresher, a chance to step back and say, look, is this really what I want? Is this, you know, or is it time for me to start looking at something else? Great players in any sport, you exude a love for the game. You know, they, they look as though they, that's where they want to be and that's where they want to be all the time. Um, and I've never, I haven't really got that from Jeannie for, for a long time. I've seen her on television. I've seen her in person. I've spoken to her. I've interviewed her. Um, and what her motivations are for the sport, I mean, that's, I'm not exactly sure. But I don't get a joy, a love for it. 
in quite the same way that I get for other athletes. And if that's the case, tennis, professional tennis is a tough grind for those who love the game. For those who don't necessarily love the game in that way, I'm not even sure what it can be. So I, I'm like you guys. I, I anxiously sit around and, and, and wait uh, for her to come back or not to come back or tell us what's going on with her, and uh, and we'll all kind of wait and see um, what happens. It, it's, it's disappointing, but on the other hand, she's a person, right? And uh, whatever's going on with her, she deserves her privacy, and if she decides that this isn't the life she wants, then I think we'll all respect that and admire her for what she was able to accomplish in a short period of time. You are listening to the Southpaw Slice. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. Our guest this week is Damian Cox, writer for the Star and Tennis Canada. You can find him on Twitter at Damo Spin. We wanted to shift topics and discuss, I guess, the political side of tennis because uh, it's kind of reared its ugly head, certainly in the past couple of weeks. Uh, in the case of former American player and current ATP board representative Justin Gimmelstab, uh, now he recently pled no contest to a misdemeanor in court uh, and, and sentenced three years probation and was accused of uh, some serious violence, uh, accused of repeatedly striking a former friend in the head in front of his wife and child for uh, minutes on end. And if you read the victim impact statements in this case it was really really brutal and, and kind of shocking to read and, and meantime Gimmelstab is is still technically employed by the tennis channel and he still has a significant role within the ATP on that board and he right now to me seems like this invisible entity in this hierarchy that nobody really wants to step up speak up uh, about Gimmelstab and, and remove him from the sport, how important do you think it is in this case for maybe the ATP to step in and ensure he doesn't stay on that board and, and for the tennis channel to, to cut ties? So I think those are really separate questions. I mean, when it comes to the ATP, I think it really comes down to the players and it comes down to the leaders, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, those guys. Um, I think as of today or yesterday, uh, a couple more people have have stepped forward, Tim Mayotte and Brad Gilbert, to say they're interested in um, taking his place on the uh, on the ATP Council. Yep. Uh, Justin Gimmelstab needs to step step back. He needs he needs to step back for I would argue at least a year. Get off television. Get away from tennis. Get his life together. Uh, make amends, however he's supposed to make amends. And then I think people in sport, as they are in life, are willing to give people a second chance. The challenge for players, and I think uh, you, you see with a guy like Vasek Pospisil, who came out in support of Justin Gimmelstad, is, is many of them feel like he's been a very effective advocate for men's tennis. Um, and in, at a time when there's a lot of competing influences in the game some of them really like the job he's done so that's that's the conflict for them but i think first of all i think he's a dead duck there's no way he's gonna it doesn't seem there's that much likelihood he's going to get re-elected to the atp council now what he does beyond that um i think it's incumbent upon the tennis channel to say you know what we're not writing you off for good and we've seen this happen with other uh, in other uh, our former athletes or commentators in sport and then they come back and and i think that's what needs to happen here there has to be a recognition that the, there was hurt done here to to a couple of people and that 
just to sort of brush it off and say, okay, that's all I'm done with. Let's get back to business as usual. I don't think that's sufficient for for the ATP, and I don't think that's that's good for tennis. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've been a little bit surprised by the lack of response by many current players, but maybe they're just waiting to see what happens with this upcoming vote on on May 14th. But a little bit disappointed that we haven't heard from more of the stars of the game, kind of weighing in and saying, you know what, we're not going to accept this kind of behavior from uh, from someone who who works in in this realm. It was Andy Murray, which shouldn't be surprising because it always seems like it's Andy Murray who's stepping up mm-hmm. and saying the right thing, whether it's you know defending mm-hmm. uh, equity between the men and the women uh, in their tours, or or in this case saying no, you know what, this is not someone that speaks for me. Uh, is it surprising, and maybe not just in tennis, but in sports in general, that players don't come out more often and and put themselves on the line and take a stance? Well, I mean, is it surprising? No, because that's usually been the way. Um, I think the NBA have, uh, is, interestingly enough, I think has been one of the, um, has had more outspoken athletes than other sports. Tennis, golf, individual sports. I mean, guys and gals who are in those sports, they're, you know, independent contractors. They're doing their own thing. A lot of the time is they're thinking, this is not my business. Mm-hmm. Now, People who have been around the game, whether it's in this case, Andy Murray, Martina Navratilova had something to say, who have a broader sense of not of just themselves, they're more mature, but a broader sense of the needs of the sport in general, can see that bigger picture. So, yeah, you'd like players to, to speak up, but a lot of times when, when players, and let's face it, guys, those of us in the media, we're guilty sometimes, a lot of times when players speak up, then people in the media critics slam them for, you know, talking out of turn or not knowing what they're talking about or saying things they shouldn't be or not being a team player or all those sorts of things. So there's a real conflict for athletes. You have to have, as a professional athlete, um, a lot of self-confidence and a lot of self-belief, and you have to be intelligent enough to go out and make sure you've got good information. And for athletes who are most of the time completely consumed we're trying to compete the best they can in their individual sport. A lot of them don't have time to be informed. So I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. We'd all love to be better informed. Um, and it would certainly, in the case of, of Justin Gimmelstaub, I think it would behoove members of, the, of, of men's professional tennis to understand the issues here and to take a stand if they feel confident enough to do that. Well, we'll find out in short order, I guess, in a couple of weeks' time what they do decide uh, to uh to do with that decision. Uh, before we wrap up, Damien, I just want to say the last time we spoke, you uh, you had your book, The Last Good Year, Seven Games That Ended an Era, just coming out, I believe, uh, before Christmas. And uh, I got a copy under the tree, actually, and I'm uh, about halfway uh, <laughs> nice. halfway done reading that one. And as an avid hockey fan, along with tennis, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Although, uh, as a Habs fan, you know, it's uh, I'm a little detached from the subject matter there, being that it is about the Maple Leafs, but I digress. Uh, I wanted to ask you, have you ever thought about, because uh, I think we joked about maybe you writing a, a tennis book at some point, have you ever thought about doing that? And certainly now that we see the continued success among the Canadian contingent, uh, certainly ample, uh, you know, writing material there. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a great question, and uh, um the challenge with books is always you have to find okay how many how many are you going to sell that's what publishers want to know and i guess the, you know the three of us could have our own opinions on you know can you sell a, a book on tennis in canada is, are there enough people who are interested in reading it and i would argue probably with Shabovalov and oj aliasum and maybe bianca andreescu as well we're finding athletes that may be of sufficient interest to people that might be able to do that so 
Um, look, I think it's a great idea. I'd love to do it. And who knows what the, uh, what the future holds. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to have tennis players of, of such success in, in this country that people would want to read a book about them? I mean, I think that'd be a fantastic thing. So let's hope it happens. Whether I write the book or somebody else, Let's hope it happens. Well, you got two sales right here because Ben and I will buy a copy. I'll tell you right <laughs> there now. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so that's two, and then you guys have friends, right? So oh, we'll yeah. work from there. Yeah, exactly. We all, we'll go through the t- tennis community. Uh, Damien, thanks as always uh, for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on the sport, and always happy to have you on the program. Hey guys, it's nice of you to invite me again. You have a great show. You're doing a great job, and uh, anytime you guys uh, want to have me on, I'll be there. Thank you very much. That was Damian Cox, writer for The Star and Tennis Canada and a veteran journalist in Canada. You can find his work at Spin is where you can find him on Twitter. And as always, doing a great job breaking down the uh, Canadian tennis realm. And uh, interesting thoughts on Jeannie Bouchard. It's true. We, we are kind of left in the dark with where her head is at right now, unfortunately. You never know. And I think, you know, we need to remind ourselves. I mean, first of all, all those critics out there on, on Twitter and whatnot, but they'd never listen anyways. But <laughs> even in the media, I think we need to remind ourselves sometimes you just never know what human element is happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's going on? Yes, it could be physical. It could be somewhat mental. We don't know what's going on in, in their lives. Uh, you know, we've seen at times in the past some of the best players in the game who've had dips. And admittedly, because, you know, it's it's the mental side of things that uh, that is causing them distractions. Um, I, I don't know. I guess just better communication would be nice to see. I, I don't know how her fans, her fans are incredibly loyal. I mean, they stick through her through thick and thin, no yep. matter what. They are so supportive. So credit to them. But um, for those of us that are more impartial, I guess it would just be nice to have an idea of, of what's going on to uh, to be a little bit more understanding. Because, uh, like I mentioned before, it, it really seemed like once she got back into the top 100, some, some inroads were being made. And, and now it's like you got to come back in halfway through a season whenever she does return to the court. And it's going to be awfully hard to, to bring yourself up to speed. Yeah, well, and, and not really understanding the coaching situation now, which, uh, look, we've seen, I guess we've seen this over the past, uh, not just several months, it feels like a couple of years where we're seeing immediate coaching changes and they kind of make us blink twice. Really? You're changing coaches? You just broke into the top 50. You just broke into the top 10 for the first time in your career. Why are you doing this? Uh, so it was kind of bizarre to see uh, Michael Joyce um, and Jeannie Bouchard part ways when they had seemingly made significant progress uh, when he was taking over last October and she was surging back into the top 100, top 80 and gaining ground. I I just hope when she returns, she doesn't feel like she's back at square one and you're starting all over again, which could be the feeling because when you're missing match play for that long, it is that tough. No, it's going to be difficult. And, uh, you know, as you alluded to these coaching changes, I mean, look, if a two-time, you know, reigning Grand Slam champion like Naomi Osaka can uh, get rid of her coach. (laughs) That's right. Like nobody's safe, I guess, if you're you're a coach on the WTA or or ATP tour. No kidding. Uh, We'll continue on the ATP side. Uh, As we mentioned, Dominic Team was your champion in Barcelona and Daniel Medvedev sneaking into the final there uh he feels to me perhaps the most under the radar underrated player on the atp side right now he was in the semifinals in monte carlo kind of fascinating uh because coming into this clay court season he'd only chalked up two clay court wins in his career and suddenly he's turning into this all surface threat yeah he was definitely one of those players i feel feel like we spoke about a few weeks ago and we weren't really giving much credence to his his chances but i feel like in the game today it's you know, players can can adapt uh, more quickly, 
and players are forcing themselves to become better on all surfaces. Whereas back in the day when we were growing up, you know, you had your clay court specialists, you had your guys that would show up on grass and just play lights out for that portion of the year. And then you had your guys whose bread and butter was on the hard courts early in the year and then the summer swing as well. So I feel like more and more we're seeing players who are becoming comfortable, at least comfortable enough on all surfaces because they realize, hey, athletes are fitter today. You, you've almost got to be, otherwise there's going to be someone else there to, to leapfrog you in the rankings. And so a guy like Medvedev, who's talented, who's young, who's got a quick learning curve, is going to make sure that if clay is his weak surface, that he's going to spend time to sort of bring himself up to speed. So it, it doesn't surprise me. We're not having these one-trick ponies anymore. And I think that's going to be more and more what we see in the future is guys that can contend, and, and girls, uh, women, sorry, on, on all three uh, big surfaces. Yeah, and that, and that makes things uh, much that much more interesting when you have various contenders across uh, both tours on all surfaces, uh, not just being specialists is, is fantastic, I think, for the tour. And Daniel Medvedev, solid top 15 player now. Uh, it's a quieter week on the ATP side, the BMW Open and the Estoril Open. I will mention Roger Federer's making his return to clay in Madrid. I know Sasha Zverev is, is playing this week at the BMW Open, and he's someone, uh, another top player, top five player who is uh, searching for form right now. It's been tough to figure him out this year yeah. uh, because he ends 2018 obviously on, on such a high note by winning the ATP Tour Finals, by beating Federer and Djokovic in succession in the semis and the finals. And you're thinking, okay, he's 21 years old. He's just beaten two of the top three players of all time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to be 2019 that he kind of puts it together and starts making inroads at the slams. And, uh, and that's not happening. And not only is it not happening at the slams where he lost to Milos uh, at the Australian Open, but since then, it's been a very lackluster season. I mean, he made the finals in Acapulco, which is not a huge tournament. He went one win, two losses in the two Sunshine, uh, the Sunshine double there, Indian Wells and Miami. And he's been so far two and three on clay. So, um, you know, not a whole lot of reason for optimism. But as we mentioned, uh, you know, just moments ago, we don't always know what's happening with players off the court. And he himself has kind of let us in a little bit, uh, saying that I believe his father's been in the hospital with some medical issues. Mm. And I mean, obviously, these things are going to have an impact on players. So uh, I, I think, again, good to sort of take that into account. And hopefully we're going to be seeing, uh, you know, the best from him moving forward, because on clay, he had a great run last year as well, yeah. and and no reason that he still can't you know switch gears and and find his game at this portion of the season. That's right. He was the Masters uh, titleist in Rome last year, which was uh, obviously very impressive. Um, one of his. Four, I believe, uh, ATP Masters titles. So uh, certainly time for him to turn around. He was in the quarterfinals as well of Roland Garros last season, his only quarterfinals appearance at a Grand Slam. We will go over to the WTA side. We we mentioned uh, Petra Gavitova off the hop that uh, she was your winner in Stuttgart. And look, she's a player that has two Wimbledon crowns. And finally snapping a streak, by the way, we had 18 consecutive different tournament winners on the women's side in 2019 and Kvitova is able to snap that streak and picked up her second title um, of the season look she's won two Wimbledon titles and I'm starting to think there's no reason she can win another Grand Slam yeah uh, Petra Kvitova that that comeback story that return from injury from that horrific injury and attack 
you just couldn't write a greater return to the game for her. Mm-hmm. And she's just one of the, the sweethearts in the WTA Tour, just such a nice person to chat with as well, always smiling, impressed. You know, before she went out for her semifinal against Kiki Burdens, the two of them were in the hallway exchanging a laugh and just having a nice sort of moment between them, which you don't always see between competitors. And then she can go out there and kick your butt. So yep. she's certainly able to to uh, to do that as well. She did not have an easy road to that final. She had a couple of tough three-set matches where her opponent, Annette Contivate, uh, got a walkover in uh, in her semifinal match when Naomi Osaka could not uh, compete. And so, uh, and Anna retirement as well in her quarterfinal match against uh, Victoria Azarenka. That's right. So you would have thought actually that Contivate maybe had the uh, the advantage there, but uh, Kvitova was really solid, especially in that closing tiebreak that she took seven points to two. Uh, she knows how to close out a final, and she's been in plenty of them, especially since her comeback, you know, almost like she didn't miss a beat. So now we're, we're looking and we're hoping to see her maybe uh, translate that to a, a Grand Slam uh, success. Started the year off pretty darn good. Uh, needs to take it one step further. And although I'd say, again, grass for her, obviously, where she's had the most uh, slam success in the past, she's also a heck of a player on clay. So got to put her up there. I think she was 15-3 and three on clay in 2018. She's clearly having another great run here. Um, yeah, looking forward to seeing what she can do at uh, Roland Garros. Yeah, and I feel like probably the past couple of years, there was almost bad luck involved in terms of her Grand Slam results. She was winning title after title at these premier events, international events, then she'd show up at a Grand Slam and suddenly crash out early, which I feel is more by coincidence. There's no different design of a women's Grand Slam versus the men's side when you think, okay, we have the element of it being a best three of five. It's still best two of three. Uh, The environment really shouldn't change that much. So, uh, look, we're getting... A lot of different winners on the women's side, which I I think is a fun thing. Uh, But we've also talked about nobody really taking the bull by the horns and and dominating the tour uh, to any regard. Naomi Osaka, I thought, was solid uh, this past week, taking a step forward to get to that semifinal before having to retire when uh, she had dealt with some questions about her form. Yeah, and I don't know if Naomi Osaka on clay is one that I would put into the the favorite column anyways, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, just to get back to that that streak of 18 different winners, I mean, I love variety. I love the depth on the WTA Tour. Yep. But I was really happy to see that we've got someone now at least who holds two times. <laughs> I mean, April 29th, it took till the end of April to get to a point where we have someone who's won twice, which to me is just uh, just mind-boggling. Yeah, we certainly don't see that on the, on the men's side. Uh, I feel like we probably haven't seen that on the men's side for the past, like, 15 years, maybe more. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we can uh, chalk that up as a positive. We already mentioned Jeannie Bouchard rehabbing the abdominal injury and look I, I'm hoping she can be back uh, in time for the French Open but uh, that's really kind of wait and see mode at this time yeah and coming back at a slam I mean that's not ideal after a, a stretch of time being off it might just make more sense to just say you know what forget it and I'm gonna go start training on grass and getting ready for that yeah I would I would be uh, perfectly okay with that you're listening to the Southpaw Slice remember you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore slice. Find me at Ben Lewis SN590 and find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Look, we're not going to be the Southpaw Slice uh, for long. Uh, we, we mentioned on Twitter we had a big announcement coming. and uh, We can finally share now. I've been waiting to talk about this. I know you have too for, for weeks now and, yes. it, and finally official. But things are changing. And Ben, since you started the Southpaw Slice, you should be the one that, that drops this big announcement for us. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, and we started the program uh, over two years ago. Uh, John Reed was the original co-host. And then uh, we've had your 
had you now for the the past year and change and after over two years with the South Boss Lights very excited to be transitioning next week officially uh, to becoming the official podcast of Tennis Canada uh, which is great news for us hopefully exciting news for our listeners hopefully it turns into more listeners Uh, this is something we've obviously uh, been working towards and looking forward to to get more exposure uh, because we want to keep People in this country dialed into what's going on tennis-wise, not just in Canada, but uh, I think internationally as well. I think it's just a a total win-win. Not only are we going to continue to have great guests as we always have, but even more variety with guests, more access to players, certainly Canadian tennis players um, on both the men's and women's tour. Uh, We're going to get some great prizes out there for our listeners as well and some swag that Tennis Canada is going to be helpful in in hooking us up with. And I think just, yeah, taking it to uh, another level and, uh, you know, the feedback I've been getting has been really solid in the year I've been with you mm-hmm. and I think this is just going to open more uh, doors and, and more opportunities so I'm super pumped to to take this plunge with you and yes. uh, I guess you should plug the new as we we leave the South Boss Slice behind you should plug the new uh, name that we're going forward with <laughs> yes as we leave the South Paw Slice behind officially uh, next week in Tennis Canada will introduce this we will become Match Point Canada. So that will be our new podcast name. Uh, hopefully it has a ring to it. If it doesn't for you yet, don't worry. You're going to be listening week after week and, and get used to it. Uh, it's obviously a big change, but uh, I, I don't think it's going to be... It's Our podcast itself, what you're expecting when you're coming to listen each week shouldn't change overall in terms of quality and content. I think it's in terms of access will be even better and uh, you know, more guests, more interviews is, is always exciting. Just a little bit more red and white on our Twitter uh, header page and, and right. logo, right? Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, and as you said, uh, potential prizes for our listeners coming. So we hope you uh, tuned in this week at least uh, with a special guest, Damian Cox. And we hope you tune in next week as well uh, when you will be listening to Matchpoint Canada for the last time tonight. You've been listening to the Southpaw Slice. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. We will talk to you next week with a brand new name.